1: If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: If you think you know about world history of cuisine, forget about it. We're gonna change your mind today on a taste of the past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And today, I didn't mean to, to completely uh, insult everybody out there, but um, we do have some challenges to some of your thoughts about the history of... Cuisine or Food History. My guest today is Rachel Loudon, and Rachel is the author of the newly published Cuisine and Empire, Cooking in World History. It's a wonderful new book that uh, covers a lot of information. We'll try to bring you some of it today. She uses her knowledge of farming from her English upbringing and her experience living and cooking and dining on five different continents, her scholarly career as a historian of science and technology with a PhD from the University of London, to challenge the agrarian, romantic, domestic myths of contemporary food movement. Since she left academia to write freelance uh, about food and history and politics, she's also has written the prize-winning Food of Paradise, exploring Hawaii's culinary history. It's a beautiful uh, book about Hawaii, and she's served as scholar in residence for the International Association of Culinary Professionals and has given keynote addresses at numerous academic and culinary conferences. After 15 years of living in Mexico, she now lives in Austin, Texas, where she joins us by phone. Welcome, Rachel.
3: Uh, welcome, Linda. It's great to be on the show.
2: Well, I have to tell you, I I have not completed the book. It's it's a book you want to savor, and I didn't want to just breeze through it. So I, I did skim certain parts of it and uh, and take it taken it upon your advice of where to go to bring our listeners. The details of this, but I want to talk about just the broader notion of of the history of cuisines, uh, as and you say that you challenge our um, the contemporary thought of food history or the or the food movement and the movement that you that what you set forth in this book, let's say the culinary family tree. Um, talks about only a handful of cuisines, perhaps, as being the history. Can you tell us what you mean by this challenge and what, where, where, you, where you're starting from?
3: Well, I'm starting uh, when I, I really wanted to take on food in world history because we have world histories of disease, of warfare, um, of religion. And it seemed to me not to have a world history of food was a big gap. But then the trouble was, was what is food? Um, because food so often covers everything from farming um, up to uh, dining in restaurants or the home, and it seemed just impossibly huge. And so the way I tried to define this was to say, look, we've got to take seriously the fact that we are the animal that eats things that have been cooked. It's true, a few of our calories come from raw foods, but by and large, the human race depends on food that has been cooked, which immediately means that you're talking about styles of cooking as they develop, and that a style of cooking for me is a cuisine. Mm -hmm. By cuisine, I don't mean automatically a high cuisine. I simply mean a style of cooking, and Of course, you can subdivide styles of cooking down to the individual household if you want to. But I was trying to get what you might call a flyover roadmap of what was going on. So, yes, I do have rather few um, cuisines that I trace the history of. Uh
2: Now, a lot of people um, relate one cuisine to one empire. You kind of blew that out of the water as well.
3: Yes, I think not just to one empire, but nowadays we really expect one cuisine to every nation. And you only have to go into a cookbook store to see this. You know, you can look at, first of all, techniques, and then you'll go to sort of regional cuisines, and there'll be the Vietnamese cuisines and the Italian cuisine books and the French cuisine books and the Mexican cuisine books. Um, But when you look at world history you realize that the nation is really a very recent phenomenon um, many nations have only been formed in the last couple of generations following the breakup of the European empires and even the older nations really only go back about a couple of hundred years so the question is what happened before there were nations because you can't really have a national cuisine unless you have a political nation. Mm. And the big political units before nations, um, they overlap with nations, are empires. And what you find is that although you might think there would be one one cuisine per one empire, um, it's always been the case that people have looked at successful societies, successful empires, successful political units, and said, well, maybe one reason they're successful is because their people are eating really well. And so there's always been copying of cuisines from one empire or one uh, political unit to another.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, And you actually give a a very good example of this, and that was um, in talking about the Islamic influence on Mexican cuisine.
3: Uh, yes. I mean, that's a, a fascinating case, because what you have is that the year that Columbus set sail for the Americas um, is also the year when uh, the Moors, the, um, um, the Islamic influences, finally um, ended in southern Spain. But southern Spain had been under uh, ruled by uh, Muslim leaders for uh, hundreds of years before that. They had imported the cuisine that they wanted from um, the Middle East, from Baghdad, which was the kind of cultural capital of the Islamic world in the Middle Ages, and it had become established in a slightly modified form in in, um, southern Spain, in al Andalus, as it was called. And then, of course, when the Spanish moved to the New World, they took with them the cuisine that they knew, the cuisine they had grown up with, which was a Christianized version of um, the Islamic cuisine, which had originated... hundreds of years beforehand in in Baghdad
2: mm-hmm. now you say they when they traveled to this new country they took the cuisine they knew with them and that brings me to the cover of the book you in another interview that you gave with Alicia Harris um, you you described the meaning of the cover of, of the book and it's a wonderful print um, and One has to, you know, you do a double take when you look at it. Could you talk, because that really speaks to bringing a cuisine you know to another country. So talk to me about that.
3: Uh, Yes, it's um, a Japanese print um, that was uh, produced in 1862, um, just after Japan had been, um, as they say, opened to the West. And it shows two Americans Uh, great big Americans in western dress uh, sitting in a kitchen, a kitchen that would have been very foreign to the Japanese, and one of them is baking raised bread in an oven, and the other one is preparing a meal, it looks like some kind of stew or meatballs on um, uh, an enclosed stove. And clearly the Japanese here are looking at these uh, people who have recently arrived on their shores, and one of the things they're really fascinated by is the way in which they cook, which is very different from the Japanese method.
2: Right. As I say, it's a it's a book that makes causes you to do a double take because when you first glance at it and you see the Japanese characters written on the you know on the stove, or identifying the the, um, the print, and you don't you think, oh, I see, it's an old you know. Picture of a Japanese print, and then on upon second look, yes, you do you do recognize the fact that these are different characters. Well, just as though as just as as you say, you know, travelers, explorers, bringing little bits of food with them. Um, and they're not little bits of food; their their style of cooking, their um, their cuisine. In other words, as you say, their style of cooking. And I love the fact that the book is all about cooking. Really, it's about cooking and food being and uh, deciding and describing the history and that to me is is so important in our studies um and one thing that you put at the center of the book that you yourself say you put at the center of the book is culinary philosophy when you say culinary philosophy what exactly do you mean and, and what is its impact on this history
3: uh it's all the things we think about when we are planning a meal i th- i have to admit that the idea is uh taken in part from camelia uh, panjabi who is a wonderful uh culinary entrepreneur economist cookbook writer um working between india and london and i heard her once say well, look, what does a Hindu housewife do when she is planning a meal? And she explains Well, she thinks about um, the season, the availability of produce. She thinks about the Ayurveda system and whether heating or cooling foods are called for in the sense of humoral properties, not simply hot and cold in, in temperature terms. She says, you have to consider your family god and whether what day of the week it is because certain foods are appropriate to the family god on certain days of the week. You have to consider your um, astrology, and also that goes into it. And then, of course, there are basic things like who's coming to dinner, what their preferences are, um, are the colors going to make an attractive plate, and so on and so forth. And I listened to this, and I thought, my goodness i don 't you know think about my astrologer or my family god, but I go through exactly the same kinds of emotions when i 'm planning a meal, so that when we 're thinking about what we 're going to eat and I think we always think before you know thinking comes first, um, we bring to any food preparation this whole uh, raft of very basic beliefs that I Divide up into kind of three sets. One is the social, political, economic um, beliefs that we have. Do we want, do we believe that um, certain foods are appropriate to certain peoples, to certain ranks of society? Um, Then there are the moral or religious beliefs that we have. What is the right way we should eat? And then there are the beliefs about the natural world um what is what should we eat that is uh, appropriate uh, to our bodies appropriate to the farming we have and so on and so forth and all these considerations get brought to both planning an individual meal and also more collectively to the way society organizes its food they become so internalized of course But we don't think about them explicitly until we're given a jolt, as I was when I heard this story about the Hindu housewife and her planning, because obviously she was bringing a very different set of beliefs to how she should plan a meal, and so there was this both parallel between thinking about what she was going to do and the difference of you know, coming from a radically different culinary philosophy
2: from mine. Mm, indeed. Um, getting back to the, the families of cuisines, or the, the culinary family tree, as you so aptly put it, um, can you tease out for us, like, some of the, you say, you, you said maybe there's only a half a dozen or so, what some of the, briefly mentioned the major movements Sure. I mean,
3: obviously, all of these can be subdivided, but what you find um, early on with the first states is that very quickly, most cuisines become... uh, Most people opt for a cuisine based on grains, I think, for the very practical reason, that grains are the easiest um, foodstuffs to provision cities and armies with. And
2: anyone anyone studying... Food history and culinary history knows that that's where you start. I mean, once we yep. w- once we were able to to uh, domesticate grains, you know, then it was then the world took off.
3: Yeah, exactly. So you you get you quickly of all the possible foodstuffs in the world, you quickly get cuisines based on grains, and by say, a 1,000 B.C., that's the way the world is. Mm. And it it stays that way with rather more grains than we think about at the moment. The Chinese are still primarily eating millet, for example, Um, really until the big world religions come along, and uh, the big world religions reshape these grain cuisines to fit with... um, Buddhism or Islam or Hinduism or Christianity, instead of, as previously, um, a belief that uh, sacrifice was the basic religious way of uh, the basic uh, religious uh, mode. Um, so in the early empires, you have grains and um, the archetypal meal, a meal that joins society and the gods and the individual had been the sacrificial feast, the feast after offering the gods food in sacrifice. With the big world religions, you get a search for food as a way of personal enlightenment instead of a bargain with the gods. And um, I think roughly the three most important uh, big uh, world cuisines based on world religions are Buddha, Buddhist cuisines, which transform the whole of the eastern half of Eurasia, Um, Islamic cuisines which transform the whole central part of Eurasia, and Christian cuisines which come... I mean, chronologically, Christianity comes before Islam, but the great expansion of Christian cuisines is with the move to the Americas, with the um, expansion of the Spanish and Portuguese empires in the 16th century. Mm-hmm. So that's your sort of second big stage. And then sort of quite out of the blue, really, um, from a really backward part of uh, what had been a sort of backwater of culinary history, uh, Northwestern Europe, you get, thanks to the enormous changes that take place in the 17th century in religion with the appearance of Protestantism, in political thought with the peace of Westphalia and the development of modern Western nations um, in um, theories about the natural world with a change from the humoral system to modern nutritional theory, then you get uh, modern Western cuisines, which spread enormously with the European empires, and which are picked up in modified form by um, a lot of other countries around the world, particularly Japan.
2: Mm. It's interesting because you set it out so concisely that in your premise it's easy to see how all these different cuisines have crossed these boundaries political boundaries religious boundaries and it, and it makes sense uh, are you ready are you ready for some some good scholastic debate or
3: <laughs> well obviously any book <laughs> that, that makes such you know broad claims is asking for debate and i really hope i get it because You know, I I come from, as you mentioned, I was a historian of science, and I think one thing that um, everybody who studies science internalizes is that The way we come to better understanding of the natural world is by, you know, trying out big ideas and then discovering where we're wrong. So, you know, I hope people will come along and say you're wrong here and you're wrong there. But at least, um, you know, you gave us some interesting ideas to think about.
2: That's right. That's right. We have to take a very short break. And as soon as we come back, we're going to be talking more about food history
1: you are listening to this one by snowmine on the heritage radio network.org stay tuned for more from a taste of the past The following is an actor reading an actual customer email from Heritage Foods USA.
0: My family and I enjoyed the Heritage Turkey. It was far superior to the regular
1: mass-produced turkeys in terms of flavor and texture. Absolutely delicious
2: and worth the difference in price. We will never go back to the regular turkeys. It made our holidays more enjoyable. Thank you Heritage Foods USA.
1: Heritage Foods USA hopes you had a great holiday season. For more specials on pork, beef, and other meats, visit www.heritagefoodsusa.com.
2: We are back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm talking with Rachel Loudon about cuisine and empire, cooking in world history. And Rachel, right before the break, you did um, refer to your past life in, uh, as a historian of science and technology. Uh, not past life, but <laughs> your former career. Um, and I, I see where it comes quite into play in um, some of the topics in this book. And they are also very important to the history of cuisines, and that is more of the um, cooking and processing techniques there a lot of these were shared and transferred can you talk a little bit about when what you refer to as the transfer of the cooking techniques or did I I didn't mean to to uh, to throw that at you but the I'm thinking more I guess in terms of um, just the equipment and maybe chocolate um, you know different grinding techniques
3: Uh, Well, maybe a good way into this is to talk again about the arrival of the Spaniards in Mexico. Um, The Spaniards, there's an illustration I love in the middle of the book that shows the Spaniards getting off a boat. And they are bringing absolutely everything with them to reproduce their cuisine, so they are bringing the seeds obviously to plant wheat. Um, they are bringing millstones, they are bringing sacks to put the wheat in they um, they are also although these are not illustrated. In their heads, they're bringing the knowledge to build bread ovens. They're bringing the knowledge to build the kind of stoves they like. They are bringing their cookbooks. They are bringing their um, copper pans instead of the clay pots that the Mexicans used. Um, and so you can actually see you know, that they are bringing the the complete culinary package, the, the recipes, the utensils, the tools, and the ingredients to reproduce their cuisine in a new world. We hear a lot about the Colombian exchange, you know, that um, there was a two-way street between um, the old world and the new, and that the new world's gift to the old was all kinds of new um, vegetables, maize, avocados, tomatoes, potatoes. But in fact, What's really interesting, if you think about it from a cooking point of view, is that there was very little culinary exchange. There was a one-way culinary movement from the old world to the new world, but very few of the new world cooking techniques made it back to the old world. Um, the method of making tortillas never made it to the old world. The method of preparing nopales, the cactus paddles, never made it to the old world. The method of um, rehydrate, drying and rehydrating chilies and using them for um, flavor and color and texture as much as for heat barely makes it to the old world. And so one of the things I want to do is to, you know, divide, to try to analyze in these big movements what is and isn't going, and which way the techniques are moving.
2: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, something else that we um, that I wanted to touch on, and that was your reference to... High cuisine, or haute cuisine, as the French would say, and Amy Trubeck mm-hmm. wrote a, a bit about that in her book of haute cuisine, um, and Jessica Harris even writes about it in, in "High on Eating High on the Hog." Mm-hmm. Um, um, in talking about high cuisine, of course, we can go back to the the whole grain culture, right, and and the um, accumulation of wealth. But talk a little bit about um, the high cuisine and how that really. Uh, divided national cuisines more more by class than than um, than a national cuisine.
3: Um, yeah, this is I think absolutely key because we live in such a funny world at the moment. <laughs> funny okay. uh, viewed from the long perspective of, of culinary history, because in the last couple of hundred years, at least in the West the distinction between high and what I call humble cuisines has really broken down. Um, it's true that we can, you know, people will say to me, well, the rich still eat, you know, um, fancier stuff than the poorer among us. And, and And that's true, but basically everybody now can eat the same kinds of cuisine. In the past, there was a really huge distinction between high cuisines and humble cuisines. High cuisines, um, which were eaten by maybe 5 to 10% of the population at most, um, had plentiful meat, plentiful fat, plentiful sweeteners. They had exotic goods brought from long distances. They had processed foods. Um, they had sauces and sweets and appetizers. Um, They were prepared by male cooks in general or professional cooks at any rate, and they were eaten in special dining rooms with special utensils, whether it was the Greeks reclining on benches at the symposium or, you know, um, the French um, in the 18th century eating off fine porcelain in in dining rooms. Mm. And none of that was true of what most people were eating. They depended largely on grain, rice, or bread, very little in the way of meat or fat, um, no sauces or sweets. Um, it was a home cuisine prepared by domestic cooks, and it was eaten out of a common bowl, usually with a spoon or the fingers, in in, in without any special dining area. Uh, And that was the basic reality, and it mirrored the social and political reality of a small, um, landowning, monarchical, aristocratic elite um, and a large number of people who actually did the work on the land.
2: Mm. It's interesting because you also mentioned the, well, not also mentioned, you mentioned the social aspect of the dining habits and very much of... Culinary um, study about the dining habits and uh, and in the book you mentioned too, like whoever you know thought that the that a meal meant a coming together and like a family meal or dining as a group. Um, there's you you did examine that quite a bit, and I found that very interesting.
3: Uh, yes, I think I mean we are so used. To, it, it's you know it's almost a cliche now to say you know. Uh, The meal is the place where people come together and it it, uh, it joins us. It it is the the spot where um, people can become um, friends, united, families can gather together. And we see the family meal very much as the basis of... um, the state in the sense that children at the family meal are um, inculcated in the values of, of the society. But that's, I mean, you know, meals can divide just as much as they can unite. And through most of history, the purpose of many, many of the meals was to reinforce one's rank in society uh, not to bring people together. Mm. So the king would eat separately and the nobles would eat separately and everybody would be seated according to their place in society.
2: That's right. Above the salt or below the salt? Right? Above the salt <laughs> or below the salt. <laughs> right. Uh, well, <laughs> um, you asked the question and I think it, it's, it's a good one to leave our American listening audience with um, to give them some food for thought and that with all that you have um, written about in this book and in, in your um, studies, it kind of puts asunder maybe some of some of Americans' thoughts about um, a national cuisine, or addresses their uneasiness about whether we even have a national cuisine. You ask the question yourself, um, um, you know, to talk about Americans' uneasiness about whether we have a national cuisine, and about whether that question even makes any sense.
3: I, th- I, I mean, I think absolutely the Americans have a national cuisine. Um, I think the confusion comes from a couple of uh, things. Um, one is that many people, uh, and it's a perfectly legitimate way of using cuisine if you want to, um, identify cuisine with high cuisine. And of course, America was, from its founding, was had set its face against this distinction between high and humble cuisines, because it was founded as a republic in reaction to the monarchies of Europe, and so therefore, the from the very start, America adopted um, a, a, a belief and was able to put it in practice, that people should be able to eat well. And perhaps, um, just to uh, round this out, Amelia Simmons in her uh, 1796 cookbook begins by saying um, that she's going to um, offer cakes, and cakes that are suitable for all qualities of persons. Mm -hmm. And if you think... This is 1796. This is in the middle of the French Revolution. This is when in Europe people are fighting over whether or not you have access to bread, let alone cake. And Marie Antoinette did not, of course, (laughs) say let them eat cake, but cake was in Europe beyond the the, um, reach of most of the population. And in America, there's Amelia Simmons saying, everybody's going to have cake. And American cuisine has been one of plenty of a cuisine that everybody can share. It hasn't been a single cuisine. It's been modified by everybody who's come in. But um, I think it definitely does have a distinct cuisine. And the rest of the world, I think, believes that, too.
2: Well, you certainly, using Amelia Simmons, gave a... a a much better uh, connotation to the phrase let the meat cake indeed. <laughs> well, Rachel, it has been an absolute pleasure and I am still enjoying the book as I said I I have savored um every bit of it has there's so much in it to that causes one to think also. It's a you know not just one to take and you have to digest it and think about it and see if maybe there are some criticisms or or um, more questions to ask you uh, but I am enjoying the information that you are putting together in this that you have put together in this book and I thank you so much for sharing your time with me on A Taste of the Past
3: It has been my pleasure Linda Thank mm-hmm. you so much
2: And please join us again here on heritageradionetwork.org for more on A Taste of the Past I'm your host Linda Palaccio <laughs>